Hey there, and welcome to Truth Be Told, a theology and apologetics podcast not claiming to have all of the answers, but created to analytically look at the truth contained in the Bible and encourage critical thinking on how to apply that truth to our lives. I'm Micah Gunn, and I appreciate you listening in. No matter your level of understanding or knowledge, I sincerely hope and pray that you find these words edifying, informative, and beneficial. So let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Truth Be Told. This is actually my very first interview episode of a podcast, so that's really cool. I have joining me today Dr. Mr. Stephen Britt, whichever you'd like to go by. Doctor is pretty sweet, even though it's not necessarily a PhD in this subject, but it definitely overlaps. Uh, Dr. Britt, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hello, everybody. Uh, so, all right, you broached the subject. I do have a PhD. It's in applied mathematics. So it, it kind of relates a little bit to the topic we'll be talking about today with uh, these different arguments for God's existence, which drifts into the realms of philosophy and logic and, and in a way that I may be more acquainted with than the average person. Um, so so there, there's my background a little bit. Currently, I'm a pastor for the United Church of God, uh, serving the churches in Maryland and the Virginia area. So that's just a little bit about me. I appreciate that. Thank you. So as you mentioned, we are going to be covering a few arguments for God's existence today, which to Christians might seem like, well, why, why would we cover that? And to atheists, it would seem like, well, I already am stuck in my belief. So I don't, I don't really need that either. Like you're not going to, you're not going to change my mind necessarily, but surprisingly, and I would agree with you if you had asked me that a year ago, but recently I've really, really gotten into um, listening to other people present apologetics. And I found an incredible value as a Christian going through the arguments to not prove it to myself, but rationalize it to myself. And then um, as an atheist, if you're listening in, or even just a person of a different religion, that's okay too. But I think there's a value here because you can understand that Christianity is a rational belief. It's not just um, fantastical and imaginary. It is rationalized in uh, some of these arguments we'll be presenting today, which are the ontological and moral arguments for God's existence. We're just kind of going to kind of like break them up half and half. So ontological first, then we'll go into the moral. And uh, the reason I chose ontological argument just to, obviously there's a lot of arguments for the existence of God, but the reason I wanted to go into this one is because it is probably the most confusing of the arguments that I've ever been presented with. Um, it's, it's not that it can't be understood. It's just that it's been around for a long time. Um, Anselm originally created it in the 11th century. And so it's been around a long time and it's been debated a long time. It went out of existence for a period and came back in. So, But the argument itself is very confusing. On gotquestions.org, Uh, There's a quote on there that I really liked that said, those who encounter the ontological argument for the first time typically react in one of two ways. For some, it's abstract enough that it makes no sense. Most others find it unconvincing whether or not they can articulate a specific reason. A few people find it compelling, perhaps after long study, but this is not a common response. That's, that's pretty funny to me. I mean, like even after long study, it's like, yeah, you, you might not, be convinced by this. It might hold no weight for you, but it goes on to say, even those who reject it, however, have a difficult time explaining exactly why it's wrong. So we're going to go through it, uh, hopefully to clarify the ontological argument for you, look at the arguments against it, at least some of them, because we have hundreds and hundreds of years of arguments against and for it. So we don't have that much time. And then hopefully draw some value uh, from that. 
would you like to kind of go through what the ontological argument is and just kind of like break it down? Um, there's a few different people that present it different ways. So maybe just um, share with us how you would look at the ontological argument, Dr. Britt. Yeah, sure, sure. And I, I you know, I think one thing that um, <clears throat> we should clarify in this, you mentioned people of other faiths and atheists, et cetera, that, that these arguments we're talking about today are not anything exclusive to Christianity or the God of the Bible in particular, but just looking at that larger, more fundamental question, is there some higher power? And, you know, through the the precepts of logic and human experience, can we, can we prove that just from pure reason alone? Um, so that's where the right. ontological argument is, is coming from. Um, basically, the, the argument uh, goes like this. It, it, you know, the idea is that if you imagine the greatest possible God that, uh, that, that you can imagine, all right? And if you agree that, in addition to that, that you are capable of imagining the greatest God that there can be, then you've now fallen into a logical trap because <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. so that's all those two things. Those two things. Uh, thinking that you can imagine the greatest possible God uh, leads you to believe that there that this God must exist because if God uh, did not exist in, uh, you know, if it was in your imagination only, then that would mean that, um, you know, a greater God would be one that did exist. And so you failed to do what you set out to do. You tried to imagine the greatest God, and yet here I've now presented you with a greater God because the one that exists is greater than the one that doesn't. And so... <laughs> so you have to either... <laughs> you know, some slides. Right. And, and now we suddenly all agree that there's a God. <laughs> <laughs> So you either have to concede the point that there is a God or that you were wrong in the first place. And it's all about that, um, that key matter of existence being a prerequisite for greatness, I guess, which um, that's been interesting throughout history as well. Some people have said, well, for something to be great, it doesn't have to exist. Ideas are great. But then come, people come back and say, well, ideas exist. They just don't exist in a physical sense. So the, really, the arguments go back and forth. Um, so Anselm has has one presentation of that that um, flows much like you just discussed there. Uh, mm -hmm. More recently, William Lane Craig has popularized this uh, argument. He kind of states this in six points, and he says that one, it is possible that a maximally great being exists. Two, if it is possible that a maximally great being exists, then a maximally great being exists in some possible world. Three, if a maximally great being exists in some possible world, then it exists in every possible world. Four, if a maximally great being exists in every possible world, it exists in the actual world. Five, if it exists in the actual world, then it exists. Therefore, a maximally great being exists. When I first heard that, I, I just was, like, was struck. I was like, I don't know why I don't trust it. I don't know why it's confusing. It seems so easy and so sound, but I, I was just struck and I, I like was silent and I'm never silent. So it was, it was very interesting for me, but I studied it a lot and found out that it wasn't uncommon to be struck by this. A lot of people throughout the centuries have gone back and forth on whether or not this uh, holds any ground. So with the amount of 
versions of this argument, would you say that this argument should be considered when trying to either verify for yourself that God exists or, or should it be considered when uh, sharing apologetics with other people on, on why there are reasons for God's existence when really even the people that present the argument can't necessarily focus on one exact thing. They kind of have to modify it over the years. Yeah, I, I think that there's a, so, so first of all, is this worthy of anyone investigating ever? I'd say probably yes, but then again, as a mathematician, we spend a lot of time investigating things mathematically just for the sake of understanding, like, yeah. you know, if I reach out the, the fingers of logic, what can I touch? Uh, that, that's kind of how math proceeds, especially pure mathematics, but my PhD was in applied mathematics, but mm -hmm. my undergrad, a lot of pure mathematics. Sure. We really don't care about any application to the real world. We just want to search out what can be known. So is this a case like that? I'd say, um, that, you know, certainly it's worthy of investigation by mm -hmm. someone at some point in time. But as for, you know, average person trying to understand whether there's a God or not, it's not the most compelling thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is confusing. There's reasons why it's confusing. confusing. Like it relies on a bunch of definitions that really haven't been made. Like there's some common sense terminology there. Like, okay, it's possible that a maximally great being exists, right? Right. All right. Well, you haven't said what a being is right? <laughs> and what makes being greater than another. Uh, right. And those are fundamental things that we feel like you know, we, we understand intuitively, but you can't understand anything in, intuitively and just expect to proceed with logic. It has to hold up at every single level, uh, right. in every single step. Now, as, uh, you know, an overall picture of, um, you know, our, our system of belief and why we choose to believe in a God and, you know, beyond that, the God of the Bible, um, I, I would say just straight out that the, the Bible, if it's if it's truth, truth has to be able to stand up to any test you put it to. And so here is a test, that, you know, the, the test of logic and reason, putting all other things aside. Uh, under this test is the existence of God, a fundamental truth that uh, that, that you can that you can prove in some mathematical or philosophical way. Um, I. I my, my personal opinion is is that well well yes this constitutes uh, a purely logical uh, purely logical formulation of, of the the fact that there is a god and sure. that some high power exists and I, I find that very interesting just because it um, it, it doesn't use anything else it shows and, and you mentioned the concept of existence earlier and I, I think many years ago I as I was just kind of grappling with who I was as a person and what the world was all about, I was kind of struggling to understand the concept of God. And at, at some point, I, I just thought about you know, everything that there is that you can see that's known and just had that little tinge of, okay, whatever we know exists, God is something that exists that's greater than this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, none of this could be here unless there was something greater for it to come from because the nature of of the reality we see is that it has origins and really this right. is the, the, all the arguments we'll talk about today go back to a question of origins really mm -hmm. even the origin of reason to be able to have such an investigation has to come from somewhere right uh, and, and this kind of puts us in a direction for where yeah that's that's a great point so this argument is um 
in in my mind at least the value that i see in it is one in its its purpose i think it um at least allows for the possibility of god's existence in the mind of who you're discussing this with and if nothing else that's important because if someone automatically says from the beginning it's not even possible that he exists well then i don't need to give you the cosmological the moral you know it's like you're 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 done right so you're, it kind of is a uh a litmus test in a way to see like, okay, are you even willing to concede that it's possible that God exists? And I'm not saying the others don't have very compelling arguments. I think they have actually more compelling arguments, but this one, I think as an introduction argument is very, very, um, very interesting in that it's almost next to experience or self-realization. You know, you can look around at creation and you can, you can see God's hand in, in design and, a lot of people come to the knowledge of God without these arguments. You know, I, I've believed in God well before I knew that these arguments existed. But then this argument in being what they call like a priori is meaning like without observation. So um, like the cosmological argument requires that you observe the universe. The teleological argument requires that you understand the fine tuning or the mathematics of it, which would be a great topic to talk to you about actually. So maybe that's a future episode, but um, and then uh, even the moral argument we'll, we'll cover later uh, requires you to understand and observe morality in, in the human species. And even, I guess, sometimes people look in the animal world as well. But this is um, specifically confined to our reasoning. And that is um, much more, I'm not saying the others don't have philosophical bearing, but this one seems to be extremely philosophical in nature, almost akin to our observation and just feeling and understanding internally aside from argument that God exists. And I, I think that's really, really interesting uh, in going over this. So that's the value I see in it personally, not that it's the end all be all. There's a lot, there's a lot of good arguments. And I think as a cumulative case, maybe you, would you agree with that as a cumulative case, it fits into it. Um, but it maybe not, may not be the strongest brick in that wall. Yeah, I would agree, and I, I think one reason for that is, is again, um, that, that it, it comes down to really nailing down, that because it, it is, I, I would agree that it's a good way to, to maybe introduce someone who has completely in denial that there's a God, to make them feel like, because if, if you can get them to understand the argument, that, you know, or to listen to the argument and get to the end of it, they're like, wait, what just happened to me? Did I just believe in God? Right. <laughs> you know, or it, it at least gets them thinking like uh, about this admittedly uh, complicated logical uh, scenario. But but right. to nail down, uh, you know, in, in terms of pure logic is something that leaves most of us baffled. Like right. even how to proceed on something like that is, uh, is something that takes some intense training in the art of logic. And I was yeah. even thinking um, that there's, Kurt Godel, who is a famous mathematician uh, from the last century, um, did some phenomenal work in the field of logic. And he, he had his own version of the ontological proof that was worked out in symbolic logic. And he's kind of you know, regarded as the king of symbolic logic, uh, looking at the different things he did, proved some really revolutionary things. Uh, but you know, the fact that he had a formulation of the ontological argument that if you if you put in the time and invested the time to be able to understand Godel's formulation of it, then it would lead you to understand things about the difference between contingent truth and axiomatic truth and all, all these other little bits and pieces of this that, that can 
enrich the discussion. Uh, but, but yeah, overall, like it's probably not the rabbit hole that, that you want to spend the most time going down yeah. to, to value because, because really I think so much value comes from human experience. And there's even a, yeah. there's an element of human experience in this, right? Mm -hmm. Because it involves the person who's hearing it because I, I can put this in very personal terms in conversation, like, all right, here's what I want you to do. Imagine the greatest God that you can imagine. Right. You agree. You can understand any concept of God that, uh, that there is. And if you can kind of get someone convinced on that premise, then, you know, you've involved them in something and kind of put some skin in the game. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. It's a much more personal argument because it, it's not, um, obviously it outlines an objective conclusion. God exists, or we believe that would be an objective conclusion, but then it's actually asking an individual, can you agree to this definition? Can you conceive of this definition? And that's very interesting um, and unique, I think. We kind of already touched on um, the purpose of the ontological argument. I'd, I'd like to read, because um, different people have different things to say about what uh, kind of gets concluded by this argument. The Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy says that ontological arguments attempt to show that we can deduce God's existence from, so to speak, the very definition of God. And William Lane Craig says, if one fully understands the concept of God, one must accept his existence. So it's this idea from possibility to actuality. And that, that I think is interesting. So yes, it is a very um, confusing argument. It is very um, philosophical in nature. It's, it's not observable necessarily it has to do with our reasoning and that can um that can create quite a bit of, of difficulty when trying to understand it but it is a piece of that puzzle i think and, and there are benefits to understanding it and, and it, it builds on you know part of what it's built on is the fact of human existence and of human consciousness which you know both of those are things that at a foundational level nobody really understands mm -hmm. you know it's, it's beyond the breadth of human knowledge to really understand what what consciousness is and people mm -hmm. go back to whether you can understand that or not but in in some everybody can feel in some mysterious way this this argument relies on the fact of human consciousness and it, it, you know anselm's uh formulation of it relies on the human imagination right. uh, and, and craig's talked about it will ask us to imagine a maximally great being and having it in some possible world, mm -hmm. uh, even being able to carry out an exercise like that is, is tied in with our ability to carry out logic, period. Right. Which I, I find really fascinating um, that, that just the way that it, it fits into that whole uh, uh, corpus of work that can be done to try to understand whether God exists or not. Or what yeah. yeah, absolutely. And um, so I wanted to kind of discuss, and I think we've already done that a little bit, the, the clarity we can bring to this argument with it being so confusing. And um, you mentioned that understanding limitations uh, in, in your emails back and forth to me, you, you mentioned that understanding limitations is helpful. Could you speak to that a little bit and how that brings clarity to this argument a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, so another thing uh, for, for mathematics I can pull into this. Uh, I took a common endurance class back in my undergraduate degree. And one of the, the things that we studied was partially ordered sets. Um, it turns out you can show that, in, and so an ordering is just some way of comparing elements in the set. Uh, so, so when it comes to integers, you can say that you know, this number is bigger than that number or it's smaller than that number, that's an ordering. Mm -hmm. um, 
we order all kinds of things. And so you might think of a partially ordered set as comparing apples to oranges, right? I can say, all right, here's all the apples and I'm gonna pick out the best apple in this bunch. Uh, or you know, have, if I have all the oranges, I'm gonna pick out the best orange. But can I say that I'm gonna pick out the best piece of fruit in this bunch? Well, I can definitely pick the best apple. I can definitely pick the best orange. Uh, but uh, you know, are apples and orange comparable? Maybe, maybe not. Hmm. Uh, with with the, the theory of partially ordered sets and, and things like this, you can always show that if you have a finite number of things that, you know, so if you just got a, a batch of apples, there is always a best apple. If you define what best means, okay? right. that's another difficulty, defining what we call a metric uh, or a way of measurement. So, you know, if your, if your best apple is some weighted average of, you know, color and flavor and crispness or whatever, you can, whatever metric you choose, you can always find a best apple or a best mm -hmm. orange. Um, so, so within any finite partially ordered set, there is a maximum. It's not necessarily a unique one. So that means that if my, my partial ordering is an ordering of fruit by, uh, you know, each fruit measured as the best fruit that it can be within its class, apples to apples and oranges to oranges, that means I can always find apple, always best orange, but they don't necessarily have to be comparable across each other. Uh, so what does this have to do with this whole <laughs> argument? So, so getting back to the way William Lane Craig put it, having sure. a maximally great being. Okay, so, uh, so there's that word maximal again, right? The idea is that it, we have to have some way of ordering beings. Now, mm -hmm. I, I mentioned any finite partially ordered set contains a maximum. And, and that's interesting here because, you know, the number of human beings is finite. The number of living beings in, of all kinds is finite. Uh, so, so that's something that kind of leads us towards, uh, towards the idea that, okay, we've got a finite number of beings. And uh, unless, uh, you know, now if someone were to say, well, what if there's an infinite number of gods, then that kind of throws the partially ordered set. <laughs> but it brings a little bit of clarity into the fact that we're, uh, we're, we're trying to compare things. And so if you're going to compare things, you have to have some basis for uh, comparison. Um, now, the, the kind of the, the caveat to that whole theory about partially ordered sets is that, it, you know, making some kind of claim about uh, the existence of this great being doesn't make make any guarantee about the quality or the character of it. Like we said, this is not particular to the God of the Bible or the Christian God. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I found that interesting, uh, again, as a young person and for my development. And, and maybe that, that might have been my first kind of soft introduction to these mathematical or logical proofs of God. And my professor even joked about it at the time. He said, so you can prove there's a God, but not that there's a unique God. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And, you know, we all kind of giggled a little bit and, and moved on to other studies. Yeah. Uh, but I think one thing that I keep coming back to is that we, we come into these questions about the nature of reality, the nature of existence, and we, we just find a level of complexity that I, I think I mentioned always lies just beyond human understanding. And I think we, we do see evidence for that in Scripture. I, I think that's something that God has revealed. So Ecclesiastes 3.11 is where it says that God has put eternity into mankind's heart, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. So that, that phrase just always rings in my mind, and it has for, for over a decade now, that God has set eternity in man's heart. So, you know, we have this internal longing for God. We have this internal understanding that these things exist. Uh, but, but maybe sometimes it's just beyond our reach in, in a way that we can't 
to explain or pin down, but we've got that feeling that we know it's there. So I think it just speaks to the reality of that in a powerful way. Yeah, that, that is an excellent point. It's, it's almost like we spend a long time, because we have this eternity in our hearts, we spend a lot of time working out the metrics or trying to box in exactly uh, the limitations of where God fits and where he doesn't in these arguments and things like that. When really uh, the next part speaks to accept no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. So there, there's this element that's like, you're just not going to totally get there. And any argument falls short because, and I mean, you could argue with some very staunch atheists who you could present God to and say, here he is. And they'd say, uh, I just don't trust my senses. It's like, well, okay, I, I can't fix that. You know what I mean? So there's an element of faith involved that these arguments aren't going to, I mean, you could reject all of these and still believe in God. You could reject all of these and still, or you could accept all of these. And I guess it'd probably be pretty hard to remain an atheist because the conclusion is that God exists. But the point is um, there is something infinite about God. There's something beyond human understanding that we can't quite get to that these arguments aren't going to quite cover. Now, when you, when you spoke on metrics, though, I thought that was really interesting because in uh, the primary refutation for the ontological argument, it, it's called the island theory. And basically the idea is, well, okay, you can imagine a maximally great God, but you could do that for anything, a maximally great island, or if you wanted to limit it to beings, a maximally great dog or things like that. But um, I recently had this discussion in preparing for this, just trying to talk it out with people. And I thought, well, no, it's in God's nature to be maximally great because that's what we're defining God as. It's not in a, let's say a flower's nature to be maximally great because we can't, we can't box in that definition. I would say a maximally great flower has to be purple because purple is the best color in my opinion. And you might say something totally different. The problem is the island theory or the island theorists take this back and say, no, it wouldn't be on your opinion. It would be to say a maximally great flower would be the maximally great color. And you're kind of using these broad things to describe an island and then say, well, if you can conceive of it and it ex then it exists in some possible world, then it must exist in this world. So understanding that um, these metrics are, are kind of hard to tie down when dealing with God is incredibly difficult in my opinion. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. And it gets to the nature of the thing that you're defining. So so with islands, you know, so why is it that if you can conceive of the greatest island in your imagination that, that you know, shouldn't the same argument mean that now that island must exist because it'd be greater mm -hmm. if it actually existed, right? Um, and this relates to that whole discussion of partially ordered sets. Um, if, you, if you were to look at all existing islands on earth, because there's a finite number of them, uh, the, that little spiel about partially ordered sets says that there is, in fact, a greatest island if you have some way of comparing them. So if, right. you, know, you compare them as by landmass or by number of amusement parks on them or wh whatever metric you want to choose, you can mm -hmm. always find the greatest island. But the, the nature of an island, uh, you know, it doesn't need to exist because an island doesn't jump over this gap of needing to exist. And what do right. I mean by that? Um, so, so, you know, uh, and an island is restricted by its definition, whereas, you know, the greatest being we can imagine is a, a less concrete idea. Uh, so, so we talked about, um, I, I think dog shows. So, you know, if your dog shows to judge the best dog possible, uh, that's based on a well-defined idea already, an agreed upon idea 
of what the best dog should be. You know, mm -hmm. you know they do it by breed and they compare to a breed standard, right? So mm -hmm. there they have a metric. Now, if we expand from the dog show to looking at a comparison of finding, you know, the best of all animals, so the best of the dogs, the best of the cats, and the best of the whatever, or going back to my other example, the best apple versus the best orange. Right. If you can define the metric, uh, then, then you know you can you can still have that same definiteness, but whatever's in that category is not going to suddenly jump up to being so great that it, uh, it you know the reality of it must exist because we we've already by definition restricted what we're talking about. Or like you talked about flowers, you know the greatest flower we can imagine uh, isn't going to be one that let's see what, what's a great thing. So so how about a flower that carries a bazooka and can blow things up. Wouldn't that be greater than a flower? <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's really silly because it's outside the boundaries of what a flower is and what we understand right. a flower to be. So, so that begs the question, what are the boundaries of what we understand a being to be? Right. So now if we expanded our dog show to the all animals on earth show, if we, if we jump from there to, you know, not just all animals, but all people, and now all beings is above that. So that all beings is outside of our scope of even what a human being is. There might be, sure. high, uh, you know, it, it's kind of implicit in saying that, mm -hmm. that there is a possible higher state of existence than human beings. And I, I think most people would admit that, like, yeah. th there are ways that, that we could be better. We could conceive of them, right? We, we could imagine them. doesn't mean they automatically pop into existence. But a consequence of this is that, uh, you know, through this argument, a, a maximally great being must exist. Yeah, that, that is actually the best way I've ever heard, like, uh, necessary existence is what philosophers have kind of explained that as necessary existence. I've never heard it explained exactly in that way. That was, that was fantastic. And I also love the flower because wouldn't a flower that uh, gave to charity be better than a charity or a flower that doesn't give to charity, but that's not what a flower is. Yeah. You went, you went, you went bazooka route. I went, I went charity route. I actually prefer bazooka, but that's okay. <laughs> You just have to have a metric. That's the thing that... <laughs> right, right. But yeah, so, so God, um, the, the definition of God, which you would start with, again, this, this whole argument starts with the definition, doesn't start with observation, starts with the definition of God, um, would have to include that he necessarily exists. And that, that is really, I think that's the most clarifying thing for this argument is, because um, someone could just say, well, but no, he doesn't. And you say, okay, yeah, but we're missing the definition again. And you kind of bring it back to that. I think that adds a lot of clarity. So what, in, in conclusion for this argument, we'll move on to the moral one in just a second, but in conclusion for this one, what would you say is the value that we can draw from the ontological argument? I think we spent a lot of good time. Um, I, I think this can be one where you can think about for days and weeks, and some have spent their whole lives thinking about it. And that might not be the best thing. I think a lot of clarity, as you mentioned before, is speaking to this argument's limitations and realizing this isn't something to hang your hat on necessarily, but it can be something enjoyable to think about. It can be, um, it can strengthen your understanding maybe, or your, your uh, affirmation that God exists. But so I think there's value in the argument and I think there's value in limiting the argument as you've spoken to, but what value can we draw from uh, the ontological argument as a whole, as we conclude with this section. 
So, so you know, you mentioned earlier about a, a person who can get to the point where they say, well, I, I don't even trust my, my five senses or I don't trust my own ability to think. And philosophers have gone directly into that realm throughout mm-hmm. history. And we have record of, record of this, you know, famous expression of it is uh, Descartes saying, I think therefore I am. Uh, so, so the idea that, you, you know, you can establish your own internal existence in your head and, and beyond that, you know, actually part of his point was beyond that. I can't validate anybody else's, but I can right. validate my own. What can be understood through pure, um, pure reason, in other words. So, uh, you know, at, at the extreme, a philosopher can choose to deny um, anything as invalid. But once you go that route, you know, you you deny your own mind, your own experience, or your own existence as fundamentally invalid and not part of the conversation, then it's like you, you don't have anything left to live for or do. So, right. so it's really uh, an uninteresting case. And, it, you know, this, the same thing applies in philosophy as it does in mathematics. If everything reduces down to a trivial solution where there's nothing further to investigate, it's no longer interesting and you go and study a different thing. Sure. Uh, so pretty much all the formulations uh, where God doesn't exist, or if we reject the ontological argument, we, we end up in that category where, where nothing matters. And I, I think we're going to see that in a powerful way when we talk about the moral argument too, but mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say when we get there. Um, so, so if we, uh, the one, one thing that strikes me about the ontological argument is that if we allow even just the, the minimum possible uh, evidence of our capacity for reason. So, you, you know, you mentioned how every argument for God uh, relies on some kind of evidence. The only thing admitted here is reason itself and mm-hmm. it, you know, human, the human mind and our ability to think and talk and, and reason. Uh, you know, suddenly, once you allow that in, there is this, this proof that God exists that we can call on. And, and I think that that's a really humbling thing. It shows that God has, has woven himself into the very fabric of our ability to think and reason. And in fact, you know, we believe that's one reason or one way in which we are created in the image of God, that our ability to think and reason comes from him. So yeah, it makes sense that if you search around, even just within that one element, you're going to find God in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I'm always struck when I uh, read the Bible and you see Old Testament prophecy that is directly fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And some of the stuff is such minute detail. And I think, man, the fact that he had all of this plan beforehand, and then you see it fulfilled in such perfect detail. It's like he left nothing out at all. Or or with um, the argument for Jesus Christ's resurrection or the empty tomb, things like that. There is exactly enough evidence to prove those things historically, um, liter- in, in literature, through, through the Bible, the biblical texts, and external sources as well. It's like he left exactly the amount needed to understand that. So what I'm struck, struck by with these arguments, even on this one, which can be confusing and um, more philosophical, or, or I'll say ethereal in nature, it's, it's within yourself, like you said. And that is fantastic because he basically he points to you can look at the cosmological and you can say, see, you can see God in the fact that there is creation. You can look at the teleological and say, you can see God in the fact that it's designed and fine-tuned. You can see God in the moral and say, in objective morality, you see God, you see a lawgiver. And in this one, you can even see God within your own reasoning. And that that's fantastic. It's like you could, basically you have to reject so much in order to reject God. 
And that that is why I see so much value in this argument. <laughs>